Hi, morning, everyone. Good to see all of you. It's great to be here. <clears throat> Father, I appreciate what Ed said. I like that thought that we begin our week thinking about you, reflecting on what Christ has done for us. And I pray with that reality in mind, we'd be moved to worship you. Um, the thinking about Christ's sacrifice would be a cause for us to uh, overflow in thanksgiving for what he's done. And I pray that we would see our attentiveness during the preaching of your word as an opportunity to do just that, Lord. I thank you for these verses, the example we can learn from the religious leaders who attempted to justify themselves. We can struggle with that. We can struggle with it in different relationships, but I think the, the worst relationship to struggle with justifying ourselves would be our relationship with you, Lord. And so I think that we don't need to justify ourselves, that we can be justified because of what Christ has done for us, and that by grace through faith we can be saved and declared righteous. I pray, Lord, that that would be the truth that comes from this message, that we, we would be able to rest in Christ's finished work, that we wouldn't attempt to justify ourselves in our relationship with you. I do thank you that Jesus Christ is our righteousness, uh, and I pray that this would be a beautiful uh, reality that is cemented in each person's heart here. And I pray especially for any unbelievers who perhaps have attempted to be justified um, by works, that they would be convicted about that and look to Christ to be saved. And we pray this in his name. Amen. 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 The title of this morning's sermon is Jesus Christ, Our Righteousness. Jesus Christ, Our Righteousness. Sunday mornings, we're working our way through Luke's gospel verse by verse, and we find ourselves at Luke 16, 14. Something frustrating happened to me on Thursday. I went into my office and expected to look over um, my sermon one last time before going over it on with my wife Thursday evening, which is typically how my week looks. I hope to have my sermon pretty well finished by Thursday afternoon, read through it one more time before going over it with Katie uh, Thursday evening, take Friday off, and then make any final changes on Saturday. But I wasn't satisfied with the length of the sermon. It was too long, and uh, even worse, there were these two different directions that I felt the sermon was going in. The first half of the sermon was about the Pharisees justifying themselves. The second half of the sermon was about the Pharisees loving money. And so because I was dissatisfied with the message, I decided to split it up. It felt like two sermons to me. So this morning, we're going to talk about the dangers of justifying ourselves, and the next week, we will talk about the dangers of loving money. Now, let's back up to verse 13 for context. We did cover this verse last week, but if you remember, I said that I wanted to preach that parable, one that I had preached some years ago, because of the context that it discusses a stewardship of money that then flows through the rest of this chapter, because we have this discussion of the Pharisees being lovers of money, and then we move from here into the parable of of Lazarus and the rich man, which also discusses money there because of the rich man. And so for context, in verse 13, notice that Jesus said, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and he'll despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, if you remember our previous sermon on this verse, I said that this is not an imperative, this is not um, an imperative, it is not a command Jesus is not telling us not to do something. He is not telling us not to serve God and money. Instead of being an imperative, it is an indicative. An indicative indicates something or states something. So Jesus isn't telling us not to do something. He's telling us we can't do something. He's saying we can't serve God and money. But there were people present who did serve money. They heard Jesus say this, 
and that is the Pharisees. And look in verse 14. It says, The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed Jesus. Now, back in verse 1, who was Jesus speaking to? It's not a trick question. In verse 1, who was he speaking to? The disciples. But the Pharisees heard this. They took serious issue with it. And this brings us to lesson 1. Lesson 1, it is tempting to part 1, reject God's word when it convicts us. Rejects, reject God's word when it convicts us. This is a great example of something terrible that can happen when we are confronted by God's word. We should respond humbly and repent, but instead we can become proud and stubborn, which is what the religious leaders did. They were convicted by Jesus' teaching. They knew that it applied to them, and so they had this opportunity to submit themselves to it or to respond well to that conviction by repenting, but instead they gave themselves over to pride. And then notice this, it says that they ridiculed him. Now that Greek word for ridicule, it actually means to turn up one's nose, to turn up one's nose. And so that's what they did. But here's the thing. Believe it or not, this is what they had to do. If you're not going to submit to God's word, what do you have to do with it? You have to argue against it or you have to criticize it. You have to disagree with it because if you acknowledge the truth of it, then it demands that you repent, accept that, recognize the change that needs to happen. So they either had to acknowledge the message that Jesus preached and repent, or they had to ridicule it as a means of self-defense to resist any conviction. And this happens frequently with God's word. We disagree with it because it disagrees with us, or we disagree with it because it disagrees with what we're doing, or God's word hits too close to home, and so we reject it. I'll give you a few examples of how this can happen today <clears throat> so we can be in guard against doing this ourselves. So let's say there's someone or people who want to marry an unbeliever. Well, what do they do with those verses about not being unequally yoked? They disagree with them. So they disagree with what God's word says so that they can legitimize or justify their lifestyle. People don't want to attend church regularly. So instead of repenting and uh, making the necessary changes in their lives to be part of a local church family, they disagree with God's word or verses about regularly assembling and worshiping corporately with other believers. Or people don't want to embrace biblical marriage roles. And so then they disagree with verses that clearly outline husbands and wives' responsibilities. And then there's some people that go much further than disagreeing. They do what the Pharisees did here. They don't just disagree with it. They actually ridicule it. And it's really important to understand this is all a defense mechanism. This is what is required if you're going to go against the teaching of God's word. You've got to ridicule scripture. That's where the blame has to be placed because it can't be placed on you. So if people want to embrace homosexuality, they have to ridicule what God's word says about homosexuality. If people want to deny eternal punishment, then they must ridicule the verses about hell. If people don't want to believe that there's only one way to heaven, then they must ridicule all the verses about the exclusiveness of the gospel. The list could go on, but you get the point. <clears throat> now, when we would read verse 14, here, here's one of the tendencies. The religious leaders are condemned so, and I might keep reminding you of this, because Jesus is beginning to experience terrible opposition from the religious leaders that's going to result in them uh, attempting to murder him. And there's a temptation because they're condemned so strongly 
in the Gospels for us to put ourselves here and sort of look down on them as though the the point of the religious leaders being criticized is for us to almost sort of be proud or see ourselves better than them and i think that's a, a real mishandling or misunderstanding of god's intention god isn't trying to to just strongly condemn the religious leaders he's trying to help us consider ways we might be like them and so the uh, best approach would be for us to look at this and then examine our hearts and the sensitivity of them and to consider whether we're confronted with god's word when when god's word would uh confront behavior or actions in our lives do we then submit to it do we allow for that conviction and then humbly repent or are are our hearts soft uh and teachable to scripture or would we be like the pharisees and we sort of flare up in pride and then just sort of ridicule what scripture says now when people ridicule scripture it is done for the same reason the pharisees did it and that's self-justification as jesus goes on to say look in verse 15. he said to them you are those who justify yourselves before men but god knows your hearts for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of god and we will not be able to cover all of this verse this morning but i do want to focus on one very important part of it when it talks about justifying yourself or or self-justifying there's almost two ways that this can apply it can apply to relationships where we justify ourselves someone confronts us and we sort of proudly make excuses but that's not really the context here the there's great application for that and there's plenty of proverbs about being humble and and responding well when we're confronted but this has more to do with justifying ourselves before god And it's really important to understand what justified means we went over this lots of times so two words justified means what declared righteous yes that always blesses me having come out of come out of the catholic church where there's a false understanding of justification that we're justified by works it always blesses me to hear our hear this church uh state that justification is to declared righteous and we're justified or we're declared righteous by grace through faith normally when scripture talks about justifying or justification it's in a gospel sense where we're justified or declared righteous by grace through faith but you can see right here in this verse another way that scripture uses the word justify to declare our own righteousness and that's what's in view here the problem for the religious leaders is they are attempting to justify themselves or declare their own righteousness versus submitting to the righteousness that comes by faith and this is part of why I think this sermon is so important the most common lie believed by the unbelieving world is that they are good people the most common lie unbelievers believe which is a lie that I believe for over 20 years is that they are good people and there are typically four ways that we attempt to justify ourselves or four things we tell ourselves to convince ourselves that we are good people and i confess that i have done all four of these the first one the most obvious one is we just think about the good that we've done when we want to justify ourselves or declare our righteousness we think about the good that we've done or how righteous we are second we compare ourselves to others have you ever done this before i'm not asking for a show of hands 
but you want to feel good about yourself and so you look at others and think about the bad things that they've done and then you, you know you haven't been as bad as them and so you feel better about yourself now if you're anything like me when you compare yourself with others to feel better about yourself you don't think about the godliest people you know you look around at the ungodliest people you know and you see the wicked things that they've done and then you kind of go man i'm so much better than them third we tend to think about the bad we have not done it is interesting that one of the ways we declare our righteousness is by declaring the unrighteousness that we have not committed i have never murdered anyone i have never committed adultery which is not even true because the moment that you read the sermon on the mount you see that all of us have committed murder or committed adultery not outwardly but inwardly in the heart right that's what jesus said he said you don't have to go through with a physical act you can commit murder or adultery by hating someone or by lusting for someone fourth even if we've done bad things one of the ways that we declare our righteousness is by defending the reasons we did those bad things so even if we can't deny that we've done something bad we can explain why we've done it or how we've done it for a good reason you know i lied but it was for a good reason i was cruel to those people but if i hadn't stood up for myself then they were going to keep walking all over me you know i looked at these things that i shouldn't but god gave me these desires i'm only human and so he would expect me to attempt to, to satisfy them i left work early no i i shouldn't have but i feel justified in doing so because there's all these other days that i've worked so much hard to so so hard to make up for this day that i left early so these are all ways that we declare our righteousness or justify ourselves like the religious leaders were doing the pharisees were a table uh, excuse me were able to justify themselves and jesus says who they were able to justify themselves before notice this he says you're able to justify yourselves before men or before other people and they were incredibly successful at doing this just i could go on i mean we could have a whole sermon about all of the things that the religious leaders did to justify themselves or declare their righteousness before men just think about the criticism in matthew 23 about them tithing but tithing on what which god never expected but to appear righteous what were they tithing spices and herbs counting out every single little spice not believing that god was going to be pleased with that but so that other people would look at them and think that they were so spiritual consider the elaborate robes the religious clothing all the trappings that their religion had them engaged in i say their religion because it was not god's religion it wasn't true judaism it had become perverted twisted into this uh, works-based religion that men had created they'd attach parts of scripture to their wrists and their foreheads in these phylacteries because god had said to keep his word always before them so they, they have these boxes strapped to their foreheads jesus even said that they enlarged those boxes or enlarged the phylacteries the phylacteries are the boxes that contain portions of scripture they put them on their foreheads so they put them on their wrists and they make the boxes large for what reason because it wasn't about god's word being near them it was about people seeing them and thinking about how righteous they were and even that i was reflecting on how accurate that is of their condition by having god's word attached to their forehead and to the wrist it's like god's word was near them but it was external it was not internal it was not really in their hearts 
which is the main criticism that Jesus had about them in Matthew 23, where there's all the woes, I think seven of them for the Pharisees. Woe for this, woe for that. And it's, it's all about you look really good outwardly, but you look terrible inwardly because God's word is not in your heart. So here's the problem. They could justify themselves before men, but they could not justify themselves before God because God, Jesus said, knew their hearts. He knew that regardless of how they looked outwardly, they were ugly inwardly. They loved money. They were serving themselves versus serving God. Everything they did was not about bringing God glory, but was about bringing them glory. They despised repentant sinners. We know from the previous chapter, Luke 15, Jesus preached the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son as a rebuke to the religious leaders who were not rejoicing over repentant sinners, but instead looked down on them or grumbled whenever Jesus received them. They mistreated people, especially the poor and needy. And so the point is they could justify themselves outwardly to man, but God could look inwardly and see the heart. Now, the Pharisees are not the only ones who can't justify themselves, right? We can't justify ourselves. We can do things that people could look and believe look good outwardly or externally. We could do things for man's uh, approval to be praised by man, but God can look at the heart and he can see the reasons that we do it, even good things like preaching. And I'm sure there's probably an amount, what preacher wants to stand up and embarrass himself or preach a poor sermon? But what's really going on in our hearts when we're preaching God's word? Is it a desire for us, the preacher, to be glorified or is it a desire for God to be glorified? And so he looks at our heart. I believe God looks at my heart the whole time I'm preaching and is examining why I'm preaching what I'm preaching. First Chronicles 28.9, the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. Proverbs 24.12 says, if you say, behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? God's looking at all of our hearts. He's looking at our hearts while we're sitting here in the pews listening to the sermon. He knows whether we're applying this sermon to ourselves or whether we're thinking about how it applies to, to someone else. And because God knows our hearts, he sees what comes out of our hearts. Matthew 5, 19, Jesus says, out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. And this is why we can't be justified or we can't justify ourselves because of what ugliness or sin comes out of our hearts that God sees. Again, the best application is not found in reading this and then quickly looking down on the Pharisees. The best application is found in reading this and then ensuring that we're not attempting to justify ourselves. And this brings us to the next part of lesson one. It is tempting to part to justify ourselves. It is tempting to part to justify ourselves. Because we're in Luke, I want you to briefly turn a few chapters to Luke 10. Briefly turn a few chapters to Luke 10. This is the account with the lawyer that led to Jesus teaching the parable of the Good Samaritan. Look in verse 25 with me, Luke 10, verse 25. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? 
he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Now, is this a good question the lawyer is asking? Is it a good question? It looks like a sincere and good question to me. His motive is wrong. He's trying to test Jesus, and he actually worded the question wrongly, which I'll get to in just a moment, but it does look overall like a good question that we can learn from. He says, how, how, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. So if you obey these two commands, what other commands do you obey? If you obey these two commands perfectly, what other commands do you obey? All of them, that's the correct answer. All of them. Let's just think about the Ten Commandments. You love God perfectly, you're going to obey the first four. You won't have any other gods, you won't make any idols, you won't take God's name in vain, and you'll keep the Sabbath, which just as a note, we keep through resting in Christ's finished work versus attempting to be saved by works. And if you love your neighbor perfectly, you're going to obey commands what? Five through ten. You're going to honor your father and mother, you won't murder, you won't commit adultery, you won't steal, you won't give false testimony against people, and you won't covet. But we know that we can't inherit eternal life by obeying the law or by keeping the Ten Commandments. And so that's why Jesus is going to tell him that he can't keep these commands to be saved. He said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so this is when Jesus is going to say something like, you must repent and believe in me to inherit eternal life, right? Be surprised by looking at verse 28. You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Well, that's interesting. Jesus looks like he's preaching salvation by works, right? Or perhaps salvation by perfection. Just hold on to that for a second because this isn't the only place that this happens. You don't have to turn there, but Jesus says something practically identical to the rich young ruler. Matthew 19, 16, the rich young ruler said, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? We would expect Jesus to say, repent and believe. But listen to this, the very next verse, Jesus said to him, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. Well, why did Jesus say this? Why did Jesus say something that sounds like a gospel you'd hear out of a works-based religion? Well, first, he's simply answering the question that they asked. The lawyer asked, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life. The rich young ruler asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So they thought they were saved by doing, and so they want to know exactly what they have to do to be saved. And that's why I said they didn't word the question correctly. Sometimes you can get the wrong answer because you asked the wrong question, right? Sometimes we'll try to redirect our children and say that they they didn't ask that correctly. If they would have asked, how can I inherit eternal life? Instead of what must I do to inherit eternal life, maybe Jesus would have answered differently. And perhaps you're listening to this and you're kind of uncomfortable because you're saying, well, Jesus, is, he's misleading them. It looks like he's telling them they could keep the law to be saved. But was he misleading them? He wasn't because you can keep the law to be saved. If you keep the law perfectly, you can be saved. So what Jesus said is absolutely true. There is one person in human history who did keep the law perfectly to be saved, and who's that? That's Jesus. 
He did keep the law to be saved. And that's why when he died, the grave could not hold him. As we sing, he sprang up from the grave because he had not sinned. The wages of sin is death, but he had not sinned. And so death could not hold him. Now, you probably know that the lawyer quoted the law when he answered Jesus. But what you might not know is that Jesus also quoted the law when he responded to the lawyer. So in other words, the lawyer said, love your Lord, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, your neighbors, yourself. He quoted the law. But when Jesus said, do this and you will live, he was also quoting the law. The law frequently said, do this or obey this, and by do this or obey this, it means perfectly, and you will live. For example, Deuteronomy 4.1, Israel, listen to the statutes and rules I'm teaching you, and do them that you may live, and that means live eternally. Nehemiah 9.29, if a person obeys your commandments, he shall live by them. Ezekiel 18.9, whoever walks in my statutes and keeps my rules by acting faithfully, he is righteous, he shall surely live. And so the law stated very clearly numerous times that to keep it perfectly would result in eternal life. But what's the problem? None of us keep it perfectly. And so what's really going on here is Jesus was trying to get the lawyer and trying to get the rich young ruler to see that they could not keep the law perfectly and therefore needed another way to be justified or declared righteous independent of the law or independent of works. And this introduces us to the two categories of people that develop when looking at the law. There is one group that I consider to be reasonable, rational. They look at the law, the standard that it sets, those 613 commands or even just the 10 commandments, and acknowledge, I can't do this. I cannot keep this law perfectly to be saved. And then, hopefully, they fall on their face, they cry out to God for mercy, they repent of their sins and look to Christ to be forgiven. There's a second category of people who is incredibly unreasonable in my mind. And I mean, as a guy, I struggle with pride. But even in my struggle with pride, I look at these people and I'm like, you really think you could keep the law perfectly? But there is a category of people who think that. They say, I can do that. I can be righteous by obeying it. And if you want to see someone in this category, look at the next verse. Luke 10, 29. He, just like the religious leaders, which is why we're looking at this, just like Luke 16 desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? So what an incredible example of attempting to justify yourself. It actually says that that's what he was doing. We don't even have to wonder if that's what he was doing. The verse tells us that's what he was doing. Now, to be fair, I think the lawyer recognized that he could not keep the standard the law set, which makes him look humble, but then instead of submitting to the standard, he became argumentative, which reveals his pride. And he tried to lower that standard by arguing with Jesus about who his neighbor or who his friend would be, right? Jesus starts talking about, you must, if you want to be perfect enough to go to heaven, you must act this way to your neighbor. And so he starts trying to lower that bar by arguing with Jesus about who his, who his neighbor is. Now, I'll show you one of the best examples in Scripture of two things that are both perfect for this sermon, what it looks like to try to justify ourselves and then how we can be justified. Turn to the right to Luke 18, to a familiar parable. We'll go through it quickly. 
Luke 18, verse 9. Jesus told a parable to some, notice this, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And that phrase, trusted in themselves that they were righteous, that is exactly what we're talking about. This is self-justification. These are people who are declaring their own righteousness. They believe that they are righteous enough to go to heaven by works. Verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray, a Pharisee and a tax collector. So one of the best examples in all of Scripture of what it looks like to justify yourself. Get ready for it in verse 11. The Pharisee, he stands by himself and he prays. And he says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Thank you, Lord, so much for my goodness and how righteous and wonderful I am. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So talk about justifying yourself or declaring your unrighteousness. Now, it, it's almost comical or almost absurd that someone would talk this way. But it's not. This is me. If you talk to me, when I was Catholic, what would I have said? I have been baptized. I had my first communion. I go to Mass regularly. I, I even served as an altar boy. I went to confession. I attended most of the Holy Days. If you didn't know that, there's Holy Days in the Catholic Church where you're ex- not expected, but disobedient if you don't go to church. I would have sounded just like this guy. If you would have asked me why I'd go to heaven, I would tell you I'm a good person. And then if you asked me why I'm a good person, I would have rattled off all this stuff just like this minute. So it is really not that absurd. Most of the people you would meet on the street would probably have a list of all of the good things they've done. And what is that? That is self-justifying, just like the religious leaders in Luke 16. That is declaring our own righteousness versus being justified by faith. Now to see how we can be justified... Look in verse 13, the tax collector, he stands far off. He is not even going to lift his eyes to heaven. He beats his breast, probably because of what we just read, that out of the heart comes these evil things. That could be what's, what's going on here with him, his beating his breast. He knows this is where the sin is produced from, and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And, then, and this is how to be justified. You cry out to God for mercy. You confess your sin. Verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So we have Jesus himself saying, this is how to be justified. You want to be justified or declared righteous by God. You want God to look at you in your wretchedness and your sinfulness and declare you a righteous individual. You don't ask, you don't ask or act like the Pharisee. You act like the tax collector. People, and this is the great paradox, people who justify themselves and declare their righteousness will not be declared righteous. People who declare their unrighteousness will be justified or declared righteous. What we want is Christ's perfect righteousness, and this brings us to lesson two. Because of Jesus Christ, our righteousness, we don't have to justify ourselves. Lesson two, because of Jesus Christ, our righteousness, we don't have to justify ourselves. So we've kind of been building up to this, and it's important for us to understand innocence versus righteousness. They are not the same. It is not the same to be innocent as it is to be righteous. So let's make sure we understand these two terms here. 
If you never do anything wrong, you can be what? Okay, let's try that again. I'm not, I'm not joking, but if you never do anything wrong, you are what? You're innocent, but you're not what? You're not righteous. To be righteous, you must do righteous things. For example, Adam and Eve were created, and what were they, and what weren't they? They were innocent, but they were not righteous because they hadn't done righteous things. They hadn't done anything. And that's why it's called the age of innocence, because they were still innocent. But to be righteous, you must do righteous things, which they hadn't done. My point is if Jesus was going to have a perfect and complete righteousness that he could give us by grace through faith, he couldn't just be innocent. And so when you think about Jesus, we like to think about him living this sinless life. And that's great, but that's only half of it. It's not just Jesus's sinlessness, it is also his righteousness. If Jesus went through his life and he never did anything wrong, he would be innocent. But to be righteous or have a perfect, complete righteousness for us, he had to do all of the righteous things that a righteous person would do. Let me just show you a few of them. Turn to Luke 2. We're going to go quickly through just a few of the righteous things that Jesus did and then talk about, talk about the implications for us. Luke 2. Verse 21. Who sees it? Who sees what Jesus did here because it's what a righteous person would do? He was circumcised. Luke 2, 21, at the end of eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus and given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. He was circumcised because that's what righteous people did. Now, I'm going to share something that could be really long, I'll just tr- but I'll try to make it real brief. Passover is when God declared perpetually that the firstborn belonged to him. But not just the firstborn in Egypt, but every firstborn that broke the womb or came from the womb first would belong to him. And so every single firstborn that was born of the Israelites belonged to the Lord until the Levites at the golden calf did something really incredible and took a stand for the Lord so that God said, you know what? The Levites are going to be that firstborn, and I'm going to pull them out of the, 11, the other 12 tribes so that they can serve as, leave, as the temple workers for me. And now, perpetually, every single other firstborn who does not serve in the temple, like the Levites, must be redeemed or ransomed from temple service. So maybe you didn't know that or hadn't thought about that because Scripture doesn't give a whole bunch of attention to it. But every single firstborn that was not from the tribe of Levi, who was not going to serve in the temple, had to be then redeemed. And look in verse 22 to see this happening with Jesus. The time came for their purification according to the law of Moses. They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Notice the repetition of the word law. We saw the word law in verse 22. As it is written in the law of the Lord, for the second time, every male who, every firstborn male, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy or shall be set apart for the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. There's the word law again, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So just hold on. So I'm going to connect the dots, but I want to get to these passages first and then I'll explain why this is so significant. 
So because Jesus wasn't from the tribe of Levi, even he needed to be ransomed. So his parents even brought him to the temple, because he's from the tribe, tribe of Judah, to be ransomed or redeemed from temple service because he wasn't a Levite. So he had to be redeemed as well. Turn to Matthew 3. So we've got Jesus circumcised, we've got him redeemed from the law or from temple service. Turn to Matthew 3. <clears throat> Any guesses in this chapter what we see Jesus do because it's what every righteous person would do? What does he do here? He's baptized. Look in verse 13. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Verse 14, John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? So, there's two, so John tries to stop Jesus from being baptized, and there's two reasons he did so. One reason is in verse 11. John said, I'm baptizing you with water for repentance. He's speaking to the crowds, not to Jesus. He says, I baptize with water for repentance, but someone is coming after me who's mightier than me, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry, and he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So Jesus, so John did not expect to baptize Jesus with water. Instead, he thought Jesus was going to come and baptize people with fire. And so he says, this is backwards. This is all wrong. And the other reason that John did not expect to be baptized is that John is performing a baptism of repentance. It's not a Christian baptism John's performing. It is not about when we have a baptism, it's a public identifying with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. But Christ has not died, been buried, and resurrected yet. So this is a baptism of repentance to prepare people for the Messiah. And so John says, you don't need to be repent of anything. Why would you engage in this baptism? And the reason is, this is what righteous people do righteous people are baptized and that is not my opinion because look how jesus responds to john in one sentence he causes john to relent matthew 3 15 jesus answered and said let it be so now or let me be baptized for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness and then john consented and so jesus says if I'm going to have a perfect and complete righteousness, I must do this. So you must baptize me because this is what righteous people do. Turn to Matthew 17, last example. Last example. Lots of other examples of Jesus' righteous acts to have a perfect and complete righteousness for us. Even the end of John's gospel says what about all of the acts that Jesus engaged in? If all of them were recorded, we would not have room for all of the books, right? So that's how many righteous things Jesus did to have a perfect and complete righteousness for us. I'm just highlighting a few of them. Now here in Matthew 17 is an interesting one. Verse 24, they come to Capernaum, the tax collectors of the two drachma, tax the temple tax went up to peter and they said does your teacher not pay the temple tax this is like the jewish irs right and they come to jesus's disciples and they trying to determine what their teacher jesus the disciples teacher does or doesn't do and they say does he pay the temple tax verse 25 he said yes he does peter said yes my teacher does pay the temple tax Verse 25, and when Peter came into the house, 
Jesus spoke to him first, and he said, and this is interesting, what do you think, Simon, or another name for Peter, Peter's previous name, from whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax from their sons or from others? So Jesus asks Peter, whom do kings tax? Do they tax their sons or do they tax the people? And Peter said in verse 26, from others. And then Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Which makes perfect sense. If you think of a king, a king does not tax his own son. He taxes the people. And so when Jesus asks Peter this question, Peter answers correctly. And then Jesus says, you're right. The sons of the king are free from paying taxes. What's the point he's making? I'm the son of the king. I don't need to pay the temple tax because the king doesn't tax his son. But look at verse 27. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the fish. So a supernatural event here where he goes and fishes, catches this fish. When you open its mouth, you're going to find a shekel. And then you take that and you give it to them. But notice this. He doesn't say, give them the temple tax for yourself or for the other disciples, but not for me because I'm exempt. He specifically says, give this tax to the temple for me as well. And why did he do that even though he was exempt? Because this is what righteous people do. And Jesus had to do every single righteous thing that a righteous person does. Now, stay with me. I know there's a few accounts to jump through quickly, but I think it's really the only way to get this overall view or elevated view. And I want to ask you to think about some things that to me are incredibly interesting and amazing. Circumcision, while physical, always pictured a spiritual reality, a circumcision of the heart. Jesus was circumcised even though he didn't need any spiritual cleansing of the heart. You just read that Jesus was redeemed because he was from the tribe of Judah and not Levi. The Redeemer was redeemed. He was redeemed from priestly service. The great high priest was redeemed from priestly service. He experienced a baptism of repentance when he had nothing to repent of. He paid the temple tax that as the king's son, he did not have to pay. And why did he do that? He did it for you. And he did it for me. He did it so he would have a perfect and complete righteousness that he could give to us by grace through faith. Jesus Christ became our perfect and complete righteousness that could be imputed to us by grace through faith. That is why we don't need to justify ourselves. That is why we don't need to strive in our own effort to be saved or to be good enough. Because all of the righteousness that anyone needs to get to heaven was already accomplished by Christ himself. 
It's part of the classic double imputation that takes place at every single conversion when people put their faith in Christ. Our unrighteousness imputed to him, our perfect and complete righteousness, or excuse me, our unrighteousness imputed to him and his perfect and complete righteousness imputed to us. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so Christ, our righteousness, offers us his perfect and complete righteousness by faith and then receives our sin from us. I just hope we never tire of that. I was blessed last night to have been at this um, event, this, this Broadway night, and this gentleman, it was uh, Jordan String. I don't see any reason not to mention his name. And he stands up at the end, and I'm assuming he knows he's speaking to an almost entirely Christian audience, and he just gives this wonderful gospel presentation. And, and one of the things he said that I appreciated was, I hope we never, we should never tire of the gospel. We should never cease being fascinated by it and essentially always grow in our love and appreciation for it. And I want you to have a little more love and appreciation for it because you know that every single righteous thing that a righteous person could do, Jesus did to have that perfect righteousness to give to you. And I'll close with this. It is only available for people who are not like the Pharisees. It is only available for people who are not doing what the Pharisees were doing and seeking to justify themselves. It is only available for people who recognize their unrighteousness, repent, and look to Christ to be saved. If you have any questions about anything I've shared this morning, I'll be a friend after service, and I consider it a privilege to speak with you. Father, I do thank you for your son and his perfect life, not his, his innocent life, although we do thank you for his innocence. We thank you for his sinlessness, that unblemished lamb who was sacrificed for our sins. But we thank you beyond that, Lord, for his perfect righteousness that is given to us. We thank you for double imputation, Lord, that our sins would be imputed to Christ and that his perfect righteousness would be imputed to us. Lord, thank you for that. Let us never tire of growing Uh, let us never grow tired of that wonderful, beautiful truth. And I pray, Lord, that we would be, feel alleviated of needing to strive to be justified by works because of the great righteousness of your Son. Uh, We strive to obey, we strive to serve, uh, we perform works that we believe are pleasing to you, not to be saved, but because we are saved and we see them as an overflow of of our thankful hearts, Lord, and active worship to you. And we thank you so much for your son, and we pray these things in his name. Amen.